Hello and welcome to Men Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. We're still audio only for the time being. I just got back from holiday and uh, some of you know that I will be in LA this coming week for the um, the Free Presses event. The Clash of the Female Titans was a sexual revolution, a good thing. Um, hopefully see some of you there. So we're just sticking to audio only so that we can uh, continue to release episodes over the next week or two. Uh, I spoke today to Holly Lawford-Smith who is a political philosopher, professor at the University of Melbourne, and her book for Oxford University Press, you probably would have heard about it because it caused quite a furore at the time, was called Gender Critical Feminism, published last year. And she's also got a new book out, uh, Sex Matters, Essays in Gender Critical Philosophy. We discussed um, the difference between gender critical feminism and other kinds of feminism, whether or not turf is a slur, and we had a very involved debate into the extended section as well on um, social, social constructivism and whether or not differences between men and women are innate or socialized and whether it would matter um, either way. Uh, you can find that extended version of the episode at louiseperry.substack.com where you can also find bonus episodes and the MLM chat community. Enjoy. So Holly, I wanted to start by asking you whether turf is a slur, because you have a chapter in your upcoming book asking precisely that question. And I personally don't treat it like a slur. Yeah. I actually describe myself as a turf because I find it funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think there is an argument, it clearly is used as a slur by some people. So it's actually quite a complicated question to answer. Yeah, it's tricky because I sort of agree with you that things have changed a lot over the last few years. And so my position now on whether it's a slur and the way in which I use it maybe doesn't match what I argued in my book that has just come out. And I was writing that, I mean, I actually, I should have checked when, because I wrote that initially as a draft paper with a bunch of the British turfs let's just lean into that um I, maybe that was already 2018 or something um so this paper came out I think it was 2018 or 2019 in a really well-regarded philosophy journal using the word turf it was a trans activist very vitriolic misogynist trans woman who was quite prominent in the profession and he was using that term um like yeah in a sort of pejorative way and making this mocking case about like it being turf propaganda to say that trans women are men, something like that. And so we wrote this response paper because um, him and a number of other people were kind of, yeah, maybe just kind of claiming that it was absolutely ridiculous to call this term a slur and it's just descriptive. Meanwhile, all these activists, of course, are using it in conjunction with like rape threats and death threats and this really graphic imagery of violence against women. So I think we were all highly motivated to sort of make the case that the journal shouldn't be using that language, like an academic mm. journal trying to be hospitable to women in a profession where women are underrepresented. So I think we wrote a complaint letter to a main philosophy blog and then we wrote this draft paper and then I can't even, I think we tried to get that published and couldn't get it published anywhere. And you know how it goes with co-authored stuff, like eventually everyone else dropped off and, and then it was just me and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I was Flying just flag. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I was having that problem with a lot of my work actually just like journals were just sort of death rejecting it mm. of course my, my opponents will say that the work was bad but um 
anyway, it's, it's been a really long road with that paper. So it t- became part of the book. So now I have this paper in 2023 arguing that turf, in fact, is a slur on nine major accounts of slurs in the slurs literature <laughs> and trying to pick like representative theories from all the different types of um, accounts that there are. But yeah, it is in some sense a project that made more sense in 2018 than it, may, than it, than it really makes now because um, I, like many of the other gender critical women, yeah, kind of use it in a fun way and have partly, I think we have partly reclaimed it and taken some of the sting out of it. And um, there's certainly still controversial uses of it, right? Like didn't Sarah Jane Barker recently do the sort of his, his incitement to violence against women using that word? Uh, yeah, yeah, the punch, punch, punch. turfs. Yeah, exactly. so this was um, a trans activist who gave a speech in London, I think, in mm-hmm. some kind of rally and uh, – uh, yeah, really went for it with the violent rhetoric in association with the word turf. Right. And this is also someone who has a has a history of violence and yes. in prison for yeah. So, you know, it's not Serious a trivial violence. claim. Yeah. yeah. No, and I've been um I was I'm actually writing a paper at the moment on how to tell the difference when between when words are incitement in that kind of way that Sarah Jane, Jane Barker was accused of using and when they're just like the desperate rhetoric of a minority group right because you can imagine like a really oppressed people's saying quite violent things but as a last resort so I got really interested in that question and one of the cases that I'm using in the paper is violent trans activist language and so I was finding all these examples of like kill the turfs t-shirts and things like this sort of around pride marches around the world and yeah there's this interesting question about how seriously it is meant um and the fact that it is like male people saying it or wearing that stuff, uh, they are really entitled. And so the question is, is that misogyny of the usual kind and should we take it seriously as a threat given the history of male, male violence against women? And maybe they would say, no, like trans people are just such an oppressed group and this is one of our few ways of expressing our rage and frustration mm. with this. You know, so it's like you can, I can – I can always have this fight with the trans activist in my head and I kind of know their moves by now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, know. me too. I think they're quite, uh, they're, they're, they, <laughs> their playbook is quite sort of, well, um, it's been well rehearsed for this stage. So I think we all kind of know where the arguments lead. Yes. I think the turf is a slur.com was, or something like that was mm. a domain bought by some gender critical feminists where they, do you remember this? They put together yeah. sort of all the um, copious, copious examples of specifically turf being used against J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I didn't know that they had it targeting her in particular, but I know that there was. Actually, I interviewed Corinna Cohn. Why do I always say her surname wrong? Cohn or Con, the um, uh, gender critical transsexual person. And uh, she was saying that she had actually started a version of turf as a slur on some obsolete platform like a tumblr mm. or something and then and then Ancient i think history, Re- yeah. yeah rebecca riley cooper's version came along after that and then i think there's oh, even yeah, a google yeah. drive version now that has like got the most up-to-date ones but but again if anyone looks at any of those repositories it's very hard to deny the way that that term is used violently mm. and explicitly to to shut women up or shut women down Oh yeah, and I mean, I anyone in any doubt who doesn't want to look through the, the compendium, um, just search J.K. Rowling's handle on Twitter plus the word turf. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's the 
it's become self-evident that it's used in this way yeah which is i i don't know but then i i I look some, I'm in this position, right, where I became, I've been a turf for a long time and I became a turf when I was at university and so I was kind of in the belly of the beast and this was also at the era when it was very early days for gender critical feminism having any kind of mainstream status. Yeah. And so I basically kept it to myself and, um, and would not have called myself a turf at the time and definitely would have, as you rightly do, balked at the idea of, you know, mainstream academic journals using the term and so forth Mm. and I think now I a big part of the reason I think I feel fine using the word turf and find it quite funny when 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 sort of said with a smile Mm -hmm. is that um I actually really don't get any of that grief anymore oh interesting yeah and I think it's because now I'm kind of earmarked as a conservative and so I get in public life so I get other criticism Mm -hmm. But I don't get that kind of like intense um, vitriol, which I think is directed at, at people considered to be apostates. I think it's when you're when you're within universities and you're seen as a kind of fifth columnist, or when you're ostensibly on the left mm-hmm. in some fashion, like you're in the Labour Party or writing for a left wing outlet or something like this. So I got a bit more of it when I was at the New Statesman because that's a left wing magazine. But now they just leave me alone. Whereas I cast my eye over your Twitter mention sometimes, Holly, and I'm like, wow. That's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often feel like I'm getting it in the neck from all sides. <laughs> like so, yeah, it's, um, uh, I guess that needs even more explanation than that. So I agree with you. I hadn't thought about it specifically in connection to the word turf, but I certainly agree with you that like there's something about the the apostate, like people are comfortable with knowing who the two tribes are and who your enemy is, depending on which one you're in. Mm-hmm. And so it's more comfortable to them. Like if only I would have my view, like be quote unquote anti-trans, but call myself right wing, then that's fine. That's comfortable. And we're almost too lazy to bother arguing about it because we just know that, that those are the groups. But yeah, the problem is really when you've, you're supposed to be a left wing feminist but you also think sex work is rape or whatever and then mm-hmm. and then we've got a problem right or, or you're not I don't like intersectionality like that's another thing where everyone's just like you're a fucking racist because because we are intersectional like we, it's like no what we half the population of the whole country it's so stupid but yeah so it's true mm-hmm. that they put more resources into kind of attacking you and trying to like shut you down when you're not towing the line for the side and yeah maybe it's the same thing in a micro version actually I'm thinking about like like this week I've been getting it <laughs> from them um what do you call the like the dogmatic pronouns feminists like maybe you're one of them I don't know but I'm like oh the- <laughs> who say you use biological sex appropriate pronouns at all times yeah, at all times so it's not just like as a general rule or for misogynists mm. or people who have done violence against women it's like like I interviewed this Australian transsexual woman um, who I'm like on, on friendly terms with. I doubt very much that she would have agreed to an interview on which I, I say he and him and then go about calling him a man on Twitter right afterwards. Mm. It's an interpersonal thing. Uh, and these, you know, it's not like there's lots of them, but it's enough that there, I mean, someone from New Zealand who we have mutual friends like atted me yesterday and was just like, fuck you. 
like you dick pandering something. I'm just like, what the fuck? Because I talked to a transsexual person and I said, she, that's it. Mm. That's, it doesn't matter what anything else I've done. It's that this principle that whatever Julia Long throws out into the atmosphere and whoever else like promotes as being this thing that we must do. Somehow now these women have internalized, oh, this is this thing that we must do. And there's no nuance. There's no, (laughs) and then, yeah, you could have spent five years and nearly lost your job twice for the movement, but they still feel entitled to, to tell you, fuck you if you do a pronoun wrong, like for strategic Mm. reasons. So yeah, I mean, that's that feeling of like getting it in the neck from all sides, but maybe it's just like, that's a very specific micro version of the leftist feminist who has these militant rules, but she's still behaving in just the way that like the left are behaving toward dissident leftists. I don't want to say that this doesn't happen on the right because it does. I think that the the more sort of... um... I guess more cliquey, extreme, very online sections of the right are probably more likely to be to hunt down apostates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that probably the kind of mainstream conservatism is less sensitive to that. And mm. my experience actually of 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 having a foot a little bit in two camps, you know, saying, for instance, I, yeah, I make the argument in um, the case against sexual revolution for marriage, um, but then I'm also you know well some conservatives would say that I'm sort of too forgiving of women and I don't give women enough agency and authoring their own uh, misfortune and whatever mm-hmm. um and yet I am generally welcomed with open arms by the kind of pro-marriage conservatives and who are willing to overlook that yeah okay interesting for some reason and I'm not quite sure why that is but you know this line right the left look for traitors and the right look for converts there does seem to be a long standing thing there that's interesting because i was i was i was wondering if the reason is just like who's in power like whoever's mm. in power is like they can afford to be really like militant about keeping their people in line and they're so desperate mm. about losing power whereas the ones not in power can be they can be more intellectually generous and they're almost like needing to welcome people more so that they can build their movement but but that's a different explanation than what you have in mind which is which is like it's more intrinsic to what the left and the right are like whether they're in power or not i think there's i'm sure there is some truth to the idea that so okay so i'm sure that on the question of free speech there's definitely some truth that when you're in power you can afford to silence your enemies because mm-hmm. you have the means to do that yeah. and i think to be honest anyone who says that their side wouldn't do that in power is kidding themselves yeah yeah <laughs> i think that's just a kind of natural way in which power reasserts itself when it has the opportunity to right um and in general when people are sort of when people are whinging about free speech it's because they're losing yeah <laughs> right yeah but in terms of that difference between conservatives and liberals i mean there's it's possible that one aspect to it is you've are you familiar with Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory? Yeah. For any listeners who aren't, so so Jonathan Haidt's an American psychologist and he came up with this influential theory of there being basically, I think it's five or six, five sometimes more, five, depending yeah. on his yeah, um, kind of moral flavors that humans are sensitive to. And liberals and conservatives are both sensitive to um care harm. And, you know, basically whether you're harming someone and equality, but conservatives are also sensitive to some additional moral flavors, Mm -hmm. which are, I think, loyalty, sanctity, 
purity and i think purity right which liberals just don't really care about and to some extent this is actually to do with personality differences that liberals yeah. do tend to be just more temperamentally inclined towards their politics yeah although obviously it's also influenced by family culture and all of this and i think that because of that it means that conservatives generally find it easier to understand liberals and actually conservatives do a better job when given a kind of intellectual turing test and they're asked to explain how the other side viewer matter Mm -hmm. conservatives generally do quite a good job of explaining what liberals think Mm -hmm. whereas liberals find it really hard to understand what conservatives think about things and will generally fail intellectual turing tests of that kind because they don't get the set that they're like but why would you care about sanctity but why would you care about loyalty but why would you care about purity they just those are kind of incomprehensible dimensions oh i see but you you're saying because the the conservatives have in common with the liberals the two out of five it's not yeah. that they're it's not that they're somehow intrinsically better at mind reading or whatever. It's just that they no, already no, no, have yeah. the thing, so they know what it is to care about them, but the yeah. liberals don't have the reciprocal experience of caring about the other three. Yeah, I see. Which might also mean that conservatives tend to be keener on finding converts because they have a greater kind of, I don't know, emotional synchronicity or something. Yeah. Whereas liberals are just dumbfounded by the other side and just find them sort of confusing and I've seen this play out in 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 conversations with like conversation with American family friends for instance recently liberal family friends and we were talking about um American politics and they really (laughs) like really really nice people and really and really just kind of normie democrat voting middle class Americans and they really 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 don't know what Republicans think about things oh no yeah I agree and but I think that's in every like in any country with these major two-party systems was it in the debate with Julie Bindle that Helen Joyce was saying this thing that that the liberals think I think I can't remember if she was talking about the Tories but it was like the left think that the right are like evil greedy whatever whatever and that the right agrees with that description (laughs) It's like so funny because it was so true the way she said it. Like, yeah, we're the good guys and you're the bad guys. And like, we're like Gandalf and you're like, but we all agree. Obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. And that's just like common, like, as if you choose to be the baddie. And then that's why the left is so confused about the right. Like, why would you choose to be the baddie? It's just so stupid. Yeah. You know, this is literally what I, 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 I need to be careful not to be too sort of to expose them too much but it, uh, this was literally what this friend said oh, like the reason the reason that republicans believe what they do is because they're selfish and they don't care about people <laughs> yeah. and I was like, no i hear that a lot it, it could be that i mean it's <laughs> probably not <laughs> we were talking about minimum wage and i was trying to say well look i am i'm agnostic i'm i'm non-economist i don't know but the argument from anti people who are anti-minimum wage is that actually it ends up making people poorer yeah balance but whatever and they were just astonished to hear this yeah astonished yeah no it's one of the things that I'm really sort of um despairing about I just wrote a Quillette column for August um about political hatred and it's something that's been bothering me for a really long time like the the inability of leftists to articulate charitably the reasons that people that are conservative or right-wing might have for disagreeing about certain policies and the economic, you know, just on anything, right? Like as if there aren't 
complex policy debates to be had about exactly what the right immigration policy is. And as if, if you're not open borders, you must hate refugees. <laughs> it's just so stupid in black and white. Um, yeah, it's, I've, I'm almost now, I mean, I've pretty much decided, but I'm, I'm, I haven't quite pulled the trigger, but this like, um, experience of being a viewpoint minority in feminism as gender critical or radical feminist it's really made me so much more sensitive to viewpoint minorities in academia and then in wider mm. politics and culture so now I'm like so curious about the conservative like and I just I spent like a thousand dollars on books buying all of the like theoretical conservative books because I want to just like do that as the next project and I have some vague idea in mind of like fully understanding the political philosophy of conservatism and then being like the interpreter between the left and the right <laughs> which is so overly ambitious <laughs> but somehow the ambassador yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah like because it just seems like we almost needed someone to do that for us in feminism right it was like if there could have been some impartial person coming in and just trying to translate a bit like god you guys are at loggerheads but here's what these guys are trying to say and here and maybe you aren't quite seeing that they care about this but they i just yeah maybe just being naive but it's like uh, maybe i can help <laughs> probably i can't but maybe i can <laughs> i agree i find it really interesting when, when there are kind of those really stalwart ideological minorities within academia who've managed to survive yeah they're impressive they're really <laughs> impressive and I feel like I'm gonna have a fun time like like finding out who and where they are because I've already been now that I've started talking about being more open to this intellectually there are already people like slipping me secrets about oh there's actually a like a holdout conservative like semi-religious group operating out of this university in the UK but they keep a really low profile it's okay I can get an intro <laughs> you know but it's like no one's sort of out in the open because it is such a um, yeah, the academy is very left dominated and philosophy is very left dominated. And um, Which yeah. is also a very interesting question, right? Which is kind of hard to answer. Why did universities become so left wing? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Quite quickly, one of my favorite leading theories on this is that it's because people on the right like making money <laughs> more <laughs> than people on the left. And academia used to be better paid than it was. Than it oh, is now. Interesting. I mean, you mean sal salary reasons rather than the yeah, way the yeah. model is run. Interesting. Because you know what leftists say, right? They say that the smart people tend to end up in universities and that smart people are more oh, left wing. It's, it's true. So obnoxious. <laughs> like, what an absolutely obnoxious thing to say. Although, of course, <laughs> you know that like intelligence does correlate with, with openness to experience the personality trait, which also tends towards. So, you know, it may be that maybe more, been, more intelligent people end up being more. Um, less inclined to value sanctity, loyalty, and purity, as discussed, mm -hmm. maybe. But also, it's, it's evidently the case there are loads of really smart people who aren't on the left. So. But do you have to believe in? So I wouldn't have thought that in terms of those foundations, like someone who just thinks that you know really cares about free markets and has like a very strong view about the sorts of goods that will come from having like less regulation or a smaller a smaller government actually outside of economic things like just keep out of our lives all those sorts of positions i wouldn't have thought you really needed to care about authority or maybe tradition to some extent would come into it but purity 
the, the things in the, that are used to describe the differences in heights terms, I would have thought you could almost completely leave out of it. Free marketeers can sometimes be very socially liberal, though, right? If anything, sometimes they go hand in hand. I guess right. the only thing is that free marketers really need to be quite tolerant of inequality. Yes, that's right. Um, because it does tend to inevitably produce a lot of inequality. So maybe if you have a stronger emphasis on um, would loyalty maybe translate into sort of tolerance for hierarchy? Oh, yeah. Or, know, yeah, there's, but... there is an authority. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking, yeah. could that explain? So would it still be that would those socially liberal but economically conservative people be less likely to be in the universities as well for the same reasons that you pr proposed or would more like if you're really good at economics why wouldn't you go and make loads of money in the city <laughs> right yeah. if you're a free marketeer and so you don't have any kind of moral objection to doing that because a lot of people on the left would think that it was immoral to do that mm -hmm. why would you hang around in this kind of difficult poorly paid profession when you could go and work for JP Morgan man that's like yeah I don't know much about this and I'm, I'm I suppose there must be some <laughs> empirical work on like what actually the best explanations are of the political bias in the institutions it would be useful to know um and how much it needs to be corrected right like how much the, yeah. the viewpoint diversity actually the lack of it is is doing harm well, I'm sure it is. But then, I mean, it was one of the, going back to this question about sort of who's in power at any one time, I think the answer is that um, the left and the right are in power in different spheres, mm -hmm. which allows both of them to feel victimized. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you can always point to some sphere in which you're being persecuted, even if actually you're dominating elsewhere. Gosh. My state, I, I would find it hard to think of any example where anyone not super left is in any sort of position of dominance. Although, interestingly, mm. I did this interview the other day with this um, gender studies woman who was willing to speak to me at least, you know, enough mm. to get an interview. So that was sort of promising. But then the interview was a bit snipey. So I don't know. <laughs> so this gender studies woman she was shocked at my view that the university was left dominated. Like I said, it's so mm. woke. They keep passing all these like lunatic woke policies all the time. There's rainbow flags absolutely everywhere. There's a huge inclusive pride flag all down the side of a whole building. But yeah, she found this claim really affronting and, and I guess just thought, yeah, the university or the sort of corporate structure of the university or the people who are the VCs and maybe it's more like rainbow washing so I found that because yeah. I almost yeah. just like would I, I don't think I've heard anyone <laughs> describe the university as like a conservative institution yeah I mean maybe in the sense that it that's sort of right that universities are money-making institutions and 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 will will probably tend towards being kind of doubly liberal mm -hmm. in that that might be true but yeah but also that she like it's so anathema to the leftist mindset to think that you're in power <laughs> you yes. just can't possibly you know yes. and that's partly I think everyone falls prey to that a little bit also on the right because of the um cultural heritage of Christianity I think and because we're all the phrase that Tom Holland uses is um, everyone's competing about who, who gets to be on the cross <laughs> because because victim status is so highly prized in, in um the Christian worldview that everyone no one wants to sort of huh cast themselves as the powerful yeah that's interesting yeah. I mean I know that's a certainly like a feature of 
feminist politics in the last 20 years, but I hadn't quite thought of it mm. as like, no, it's a feature since the dawn of Christianity. <laughs> you, you want to be the oppressed, not the oppressor. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, who wants to cast themselves as the Romans, right? That's not a very <laughs> flattering kind of. Um, except, of course, that's not a, that's not at all what the Romans thought. Obviously, which is sort of the this is Holland's point about it being a kind of invisible influence, um, even in a post-Christian society, that everyone's clamouring to be the oppressed minority. Also, there's something quite appealing in being the oppressed minority in the sense that um, you don't have to make difficult decisions and take responsibility for making mistakes. You know, it's actually really hard to govern. Yeah. Well, I guess this comes up like in intersectionality discourse when it's like, you're you're a white woman, right? So what are you going to choose? Are you going to lean in on your womanness and be a feminist? Or are you going to lean in on like your whiteness and your incredible complicity and responsibility for white supremacy. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but we as feminists sometimes want men to lean into their complicity and responsibility for patriarchy. And so, but then we're not often making that same choice when, when we have multiple ways we could go between victim and perpetrator and we, we tend to feel more comfortable with victim. So, um, yeah, I guess that, that, that choice shows up there and you can see what most people do choose. What you want, right, if you're being kind of Machiavellian about it, is what the perfect sweet spot is to be in the cultural role of victim, but actually to wield enormous amounts of invisible <laughs> power, partly through using that cultural role of victim. Like that's yes, that is <laughs> that's what you should be aiming for. Activism, yeah. For instance, yes, <laughs> yeah. And the worst role to be in is to be cast as the um, the oppressor, persecutor, and actually not have any power. Do you think that's women in relation to trans activists or do you think they have enough power? But it's different in the UK as well, isn't it? Because you have mm. made fantastic gains. Maybe at the beginning of that fight, that would have been a fair description. It's kind of easy for me to say because as I was, you know, I'm no longer in academia and so on. It certainly feels to me like turfs have won in the UK. Mm -hmm. Although, although, I, you know, I, I, I say this without... Um, at the risk of being too complacent because we haven't actually we've 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 basically managed to stop the trans juggernaut we haven't yeah. actually managed to reverse it yeah we haven't actually say repeal the, the, repeal the, the equality act or anything yeah. like that no, yeah. yeah you know um we managed to stop at the status quo of about 2010 or something like that and crazy things are still happening right like that singer i don't know how to pronounce her name but the fact that that happened and it was so vitriolic six yeah. years later that seemed really crazy to me that it's still got that level of like public spite and vitriol yeah I don't know how to pronounce her name either which is really bad because it's <laughs> yes Roisin I would guess Roisin because I thought you say Oshin when it's O-I-S-I-N but I don't know <laughs> like yeah. No. yeah okay Irish name exclusionary um yeah. on, the, on the podcast um Yes, well, I mean, she was kind of, her example is a great example of the music industry being so extremely captured by the woke left mm -hmm. that even her incredibly mild comments were unforgivable, it seems, and she had to row back from them and so on. So there are still certain certain institutions where this is impossible. Oh, I see. Like you can win the debate in the, in, like the legal institutions or in the public sphere, but still like theatre is captured or whatever, or certain oh, parts yes, of the theater. arts. Yeah. Theatre is very bad. I hear theatre is very bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, because there are just so many leftists in those institutions. 
Yeah. Yeah, but in Parliament, in many media outlets and so on, TERFs have um, basically won, but still, yeah, but have won in terms of having political credibility. Yeah. But not necessarily, haven't necessarily won big sort of policy wins yeah um and you still have cases of say police pursuing non-crime hate incidents and all this kind of nonsense because the, those institutions are still very effectively captured so nuts. has died a death yeah, yeah those i mean the, yeah those stories were really insane to hear over the last few years and i we're just um there's a consultation going on in my state of australia at the moment over strengthening the vilification laws which is our hate, hate speech laws we had um, just race and religion protected before and the bar was so high. It was like you had to be both like threatening someone and inciting and they'd only prosecuted two people, I think, in the last five or ten years and they'd gotten like nowhere near the maximum fine. It was something like $2,000 each. It was enormously hard to prove and now, the, of course, the super woke government that's just been pushing through like the conversion therapy law and the sex self-ID law and whatever else for trans people, now they want to like <laughs> add gender identity in as a grounds of vilification. And I think yeah. there's like three categories actually that are all for trans people. I think the proposal was like sex characteristics. So that will cover like hormone therapy induced breasts and so on. And then like... um there's a question about whether to put sex or gender, but if they put gender given the contestation, it will end up being trans, trans, and trans protected three times different ways under oh this goodness. new law. And they want to lower like what it takes to count as having perpetrated an offense. So it's not just threat. It, it's not threat and incitement. It's either threat or incitement. And it's even got ridicule in the wording. It's like um, contempt, severe hatred, revulsion, or ridicule. So like that, I mean, we're going to end up in a similar situation, I think, to what you guys are in, where saying certain sorts of feminist things is just going to then count as hate speech against um, people with gender identities. So, And these are specifically speech offences. It's not speech, like... Speech, um, yeah. No, we've already got discrimination stuff for gender identity really well protected. Mm. This is like really just for speech crimes, yeah. Is it also an aggravating factor in, say, violent assault that if it's done for transphobic um motives then it's treated more seriously because we ha- we we've had that for a long time as well oh that's a good question i don't know yeah, yeah. there's been this long discussion you know in the uk about whether um the hate crime legislation is quite complicated because it's 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 it, it applies to different types of crime basically and sometimes it's an aggravating factor mm-hmm. and then sometimes what you end up is basically speech being criminalized through other like Malicious Communications Act or whatever is used for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Women don't count, basically. <laughs> so, like, there isn't a cap. It's, you can be, you can receive a more, uh, a longer sentence if your crime is motivated by racism or by um, religious animus right. or by transphobia. Or but not misogyny. But not by misogyny, no. And there's been a longstanding conversation among feminists about whether we ought to push for that. I mean, one of the problems with doing that is that actually most crime committed by men against women is not pr- it ha- is not it why. motivated by misogyny. We don't know. It's normally motivated by the fact that they're in an intimate relationship. Yeah. So it's, you know, so it's not quite like, could you actually use it? There yeah. might be some cases where you could use that legislation. I'm kind of of the opinion, 
I mean, it's very unfair that women don't count. But to be honest, I'm kind of of the opinion that I don't think that crimes are worse because of the identity category that the victim belongs to. And that actually there's a really, even even conceding that point is troubling. Oh, me. that's interesting. Yeah, I think I do have the intuition with race. And it's not really to do with whether the crime is worse in the moment. It's something to do with the like expressive value to the society about the equality of persons. So it's like, yeah, if a, a sort of dominant group member murders someone from a stigmatized ethnic group and, and uses the slurs against them or somehow the, it comes to be known that that was partly why or that it's you know, more destabilizing it's more destabilizing yeah but it expresses much more about like the inferiority of that group to the community so I think it's a way that the law can recognize that that in particular is not okay over and above the actual kind of crime whatever it was and I can see that yeah I can see that as maybe being something that we would want like if there was a lot of sexism or misogyny motivated I don't know like I guess treatment of prostitutes is probably a good example right like yeah if if the sorts of words that were used like, I don't know say a, a, a John beats the shit out of her and then writes something on the wall like slut or you know where you could really pin down like his attitudes to women were his sense of her as disposable or um, I can see how taking that seriously would send a message to women and actually to all men about like what the relative position of the sexes should be. So I, I feel very unsure of my, like my hate speech <laughs> position in general. Like I, I really wanted to get a sort of firm view on where I am between the sort of free speech absolutism and the and the sort of caring about the effects for social equality. And I, I feel like I did do quite a lot of work. Like I read heaps of that slurs literature to write the turf paper. And then I started teaching this free speech and hate speech course. So I could read a bunch of literature and discuss it with my very smart, wonderful, honest students. And like, um, yeah, like read lots of cool stuff and lots of interesting books that have been quite influential. And I still just feel like I don't, like, I don't have a view, and it's almost it's quite irritating because there's nothing that I've read where it's like really. I've actually found it quite a frustrating experience. Like, I don't know, there's a whole really long book by Jeremy Waldron. It's like, oh, the dignity, like dignity. It's like free speech, like hate speech can harm people's dignity. What does that mean? Like, and so the, this this really elusive kind of concepts or yeah the the moral equality of persons but you almost need so much more infrastructure behind that to sort of say like who actually is unequal in what way and what sorts of speech acts do really perpetrate that or keep that in place and I don't know so I feel quite like yeah I'm trying to make these submissions at the moment on the Victorian vilification stuff but I'm like yeah we should protect sex not gender but then in the background I'm like maybe we should just oppose this whole bill because <laughs> we should not want to be like criminalizing people for the things they, they say in general, unless they're really extreme things. And I, yeah, I'm quite torn on whether it's going to end up being like, um, what do you call that? Like a double-edged sword. Like if we support this bill, it's just going to result in trans activists prosecuting women for saying that sex matters. That's what's going to happen. And I don't know if mm. it was worth that to get the like female footballer, protected when someone yells a slur at her on the pitch like uh, it's not called a pitch whatever it's called a field um, yeah I, I so I'm a bit of a mess about that topic at the moment 
I guess because it's such a political tool and it depends on who's in power. Yes. And it's clearly going to be used to serve the interests of, of, of the, the, the people in power currently. That's right. But then we should oppose it, right? Because then it's only mm. ever just going to be like whoever happens to be winning will use it to silence their opponents. So let's all agree like we're all going to get some turn in power at some time and we'd all rather not be silenced. So let's not strengthen our vilification provisions. Let's unwind the ones we already have, which we haven't even been using. Maybe that's what I should be campaigning for. Well, this is, a, I mean, this is a really interesting political question, um, even aside from trans and gender stuff. Should you take a more um, pragmatic view of power? I'm thinking of someone like Chris Rufo and how he has dealt with waging culture war um, in the States, where I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that he would say free speech is all well and good. I obviously um, support it in a philosophical sense. But, you know, what we're talking about here is is basically who gets to decide what goes on the school curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm right. And I think that my political group is right. And I think we should get to decide what goes on the school curriculum. And you can't really step back and say, oh, well, it should be neutral. Oh, we mm -hmm. should mark a place of ideas. Oh, you know, because if you just leave that space empty, then it's the most assertive power hungry group that will rush in and fill it. So actually right. it needs to be a contest. It can't just, the kind of, the, the, the classical liberal hope of just, allowing yeah. us all to kind of debate ideas freely in the public realm doesn't work in practice. Mm -hmm. Gosh, yeah, that sounds cynical to me, but it, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that it's not true, right? I guess, yeah, I would still hope that there is some form of like neutral, useful content-based <laughs> education or whatever, and that, yeah, it wouldn't just have to be like, seize the moment while you're in power <laughs> like, yeah um, but it might well be true empirically and I'm just like too much of an optimist to actually believe it I don't know I think that's definitely how say trans activists are using the law oh yeah yeah and you know pretty like pretty well they've done a good job very well partly... I agree yeah. but we don't do it back right because we don't believe mm. in that and and I think mm. if we if we did become fully convinced empirically that that is all there is it's just like a power struggle and nothing else matters. Like the truth doesn't matter. Science doesn't matter. Virtue doesn't matter. <laughs> then we would fight back, right? But I think a lot of us still believe they are doing something morally wrong by lying and pretending to be oppressed and manipulating the public and emotionally blackmailing everyone. And like, we think that's wrong, right? And we don't want to like stoop to their level of playing those politics back. And mm -hmm. you guys have, I mean, again, the British feminists haven't stooped to their level and have had major gains. So I think that also sets a, a template or a precedent, right? That you don't have to. Yeah. Well, I mean, because another way of playing politics effectively is, you know, it does help when you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it, does, it does help when you kind of have, can appeal to the common sense of yeah. the great British public, which um, um, Turfs had, have had on their side. I mean, with the exception, obviously, that, and this is an interesting conflict within Turfery, that um, the great British public are not sympathetic generally to some claims within radical feminism. Yeah, yeah. But they are receptive to the the, the kind of um, I always get confused between the Mott and the Bailey, which is the one that's outside. Same. The... It's so annoying. <laughs> it's just not obviously named, is it? You no, know, <laughs> the Great British Public are okay with the weak form, yeah, of the turf position, 
and they're not okay with the strong form, but that's okay because you don't actually need to assert the strong form in what, order to push what, back against. What do you see as the weak in the strong forms, like sex-based rights versus like men are the oppressor and we should all be lesbian separatists? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lesbian separatism doesn't poll well <laughs> in the UK. I'm shocked to hear um, that. <laughs> but don't put rapists in women's prisons is quite a popular position. So, you know, it's all about how you dress it up. Yeah, right. I was in a um, philosophy seminar a couple of hours ago and a man in the audience made the point that um, there's a difference between the dominant and the oppressor. And his example was sex. And I was so tempted to just like yell out red femme propaganda across the room. <laughs> it's like, all oh, men are the oppressor. <laughs> Don't let this man get away with this outrageous claim that men are not the oppressor. <laughs> it's my Twitter personality is like creeping through into my academic um, personality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I'm, I mean, I wonder though if actually we're at a, a kind of interesting point of historical change here because the radical feminism of the, of the second wave mm. which is still a very important force in British gender critical feminism and, and, also, and also elsewhere yeah but I don't know if that is as popular among kind of maybe the I mean I I'm I'm not actually a turf in the sense that I'm not actually a radical feminist right yeah even Were though you? I actually have you moved yes. away within the last sort of like since 2018 or whatever or when yeah what's your trajectory I was never really a liberal feminist except maybe very briefly um I was radical feminist sympathetic from probably about 2013 so age 21 to 20 I don't know 18 18 okay okay so maybe early, I think I when I knew of you earlier in the turf wars, I just assumed you were gender critical. And I feel like I've only either become aware of what was true all along or that you've become more publicly branded as conservative or using this term reactionary and explaining what you mean by it. So is that false yeah. in the sense of your recency of your, of your change in position? I guess it's been quite gradual, but then would you use gender critical as synonymous with radfem? I, uh, it's, How would you define it? It's a bit tricky because I do argue in my gender critical feminism book from last year that gender critical feminism is the new radical feminism. Mm -hmm. But I think I also, I annoyed a lot of the actual radfems because I was so minimalist about what my definition was and it didn't resonate with a lot of them. So I really just took that to mean like, being committed to a theory and movement for women as women, which is the non-intersectional part. So that's really like, yeah, starting to theorize and diagnose sex class or sex caste or like have a theory of what women's liberation or equality might need to look like. And that's kind of a project that could even be the LibFem project, right? In some sense, it's just that they will then add intersectionality in and they would maybe only go within the constraints of the like, the left or something um mm. so that's not synonymous with lots of more like specific or substantive accounts of radical feminism and i would also just acknowledge that there are so many people now that call themselves gender critical without the mm -hmm. feminism part um mm -hmm. that i don't know if my like my argument just might have been a what do you call that like a throwing your hat in the ring 
with what would be a cool way if this movement went, which I think maybe just was not taken up. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe really what it is, is just a kind of like a movement that thinks that biological sex is important. That currently is an umbrella for a lot of disagreement about the like sameness difference question. Um, and that like has as its primary issue, strong resistance to gender identity ideology and if anything puts kind of prostitution and pornography and surrogacy and all the other typically rad fem, fem issues on, on, on a back burner or whatever. And I was hoping it's on the back burner for now, but like, maybe it's just never on the burner at all. Like, yeah. What do you think? So I, I, I assumed when it first became a popular term that gender critical meant critical of gender. Mm. So not just of gender identity doctrine, sort of trans ideology, but of the idea of um, gender roles having any kind of biological origin. Yeah. Like basically social constructivist kind of position. Yeah. And that is rad Yeah, that's definitely rad And that's not me. Yeah. So the thing that I still basically have pretty much all the same policy goals as rad firms mm -hmm. so i'm pro nordic model i'm anti-surrogacy i'm anti i mean i'm probably actually more extreme than a lot of rad firms on trans because i actually think that we shouldn't even be doing these procedures on adults oh, i think yeah, interesting i actually think that because a, a lot of the, the the position that more kind of liberally minded mm. turfs will will say is you know if if fully consenting adults want to go through with this, that's fine. They yeah. then can't come in our bathrooms or yeah. our prisons. But, but let them do what they the like. Procedures if they want to, and they can kind of call themselves whatever they like. Yeah. Um, but we don't do this to children, and we don't change policy in relation to single sex spaces, yeah. which I think is kind of, doesn't actually really work that well because you're saying, okay, so we're going to put someone through. I mean, one, it's hard to convincingly pass as the opposite sex unless you take puberty blockers. Yeah. So you're saying that basically you can have sex change surgery, but it's never going to be very visually convincing. And you can have this non-visually convincing sex change surgery, but you then can't use women's bathrooms. Yeah. So you're going to end up with people who are just stuck in limbo for basically their whole lives and having, you know, non-functioning genitalia and sterilized and all of this kind of stuff. And or, I kind of think or, actually, or you're going to enable them to be deceptive, right? Because if the surgeries mm. do do the trick, then you're going to say you're not welcome in our space, but I'm going to countenance the kinds of like deceptive um, appearance-based alterations that are, going to, that are going to let you make the decision about whether you come into the space and prevent mm. us from being able to keep you out. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I just kind of think, I think that these procedures are really bad for people. I, don't, I think that surgeons and doctors who carry Shouldn't. them out are doing harm to their patients yeah. because you can never actually, the, the, the procedures aren't very good. You can't actually reproduce functioning genitalia of the opposite sex. Yep. You, you end up with patients for life. You end up with people having all sorts of sometimes really awful long-term health problems. Most yep. trans people are not going to make old bones because they're just... The, the harm that's been done to them medically is so profound. Yeah. I think, I don't think adults should be able to have this done either. No, I'm, um, I'm leaning closer to that position myself, actually. And the conversation I mentioned earlier that I had with this transsexual Australian woman was really interesting because we were both getting quite close to that position. And it was surprising because mm. she was sort of saying, yeah, there's a sense in which it makes me a hypocrite. Well, I mean, it's so hard for people who've not gone through it. You, this is the whole point. It's irreversible. Yep. So, you know, you wouldn't want to make their lives any harder, but also do you, that doesn't mean that we should continue doing it to 
people who are currently physically healthy. Yeah. I'm kind of more extreme than Radfam's <laughs> therefore on quite a lot of these questions. But um, I guess the difference is that I don't think that gender is socially constructed. I think that it's rooted in true average differences between the sexes but true ones mm -hmm. and that can't be eradicated and I think trying to eradicate them will will only do people more harm mm -hmm. you know in the same way that that Marxism's attempts to eradicate class differences just inevitably leads to violence and authoritarianism and um you know given that given what we therefore know about male and female predispositions sort of what then and so I end up concluding, for instance, that actually I think marriage is in women's best interests in general, mm -hmm. given this. So that's the point at which we diverge, which is basically an empirical point. I just think that the evidence for there being innate differences between the sexes is strong. Yeah. And my critics disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree. I agree that it's an empirical point. So there's a sense in which that makes things sort of hopeful, right? Because it's like at mm -hmm. a certain point, we just have all the evidence we need and we can weigh it up and then we we sort of settle the matter. I guess there's a question before that, right? Like I sometimes, uh, what would be the right way to put that? Like I, I think short of having all the evidence we need, I wish more people would be inclined to like err on the side of equality. Like, so it's like, I don't know, like if you think about it in historical terms, like I sort of think, okay, imagine the really early feminists and how different men and women looked to them, right? Like the, the dress is different and the comportment is different and the, the education is different. So women seem more stupid and frivolous and I don't know. And there still were people that just dogmatically and against all evidence believed in the moral equality, but more than that, like the equal potential and capacity like for educational attainment and for accomplishment and and then so somehow something about that right it's like when there's social hierarchy the visionaries are the ones who just believe despite all evidence in the equality of persons and there's something about that that would be good even if it turned out false later on like so if we ran the experiment, whether it's race, religion, tribal warfare, sexes, whatever it is, like if we erred on the side of equality, and by that I mean sameness, assumption of sameness with the group that has had the most power historically, and then it just turned out that despite our best hundred year efforts or whatever, there really was this difference that wasn't going anywhere. And so we had to like start making some accommodations for that. Would, would that be bad? Like, I'm not sure. And of course, maybe someone might say, well, yeah, like, because you made a lot of people through that time act against their nature, like, or feel bad about who they were. So of course, we'd have to talk about what that was, right? If it's like, well, these people are bad at math, but you kept trying to teach them math <laughs> versus like, well, they should have been mothers and you made them feel like they should instead like waste their lives in some boring corporation. I can see how those are very different harms like maybe it's not even a harm at all to be taught math when you're bad at it for a while um so I don't know how things stack up but maybe having casual sex when you don't want to I mean that would be my one of my arguments right that um if we think that male and female sexuality is the same then you know given that sex is necessarily relational you're yeah. going to end up with one or other sex kind of trying to imitate the other and yes. what's ended up happening mostly is women imitating male sexuality to their detriment yeah, and I think that is, I mean, there's a really interesting question about 
yeah, who sets the standard, right? So, I mean, I really like Catherine McKinnon. I, I don't like Catherine McKinnon at all because she was such a dick in that recent essay she wrote about gender critical <laughs> yeah, feminists. But, but I still have this hero worship of her, like, yeah, certain like earlier McKinnon. work. Yeah, 80s McKinnon, <laughs> yeah. who was not a yeah. dickhead yet. Um, but she has that nice essay about, uh, I think it's called Difference and Dominance or something like that, where she's really like, you you lose either way you ask that question. Like, you you ask about the sameness of women, but it's the sameness to men, or you ask about the difference of women and it's the difference from men. And then she's just trying to say, just shut up, like stop asking that and just start talking about dominance. Like, and I, I really like that move and it's really stuck with me because you're right when it comes to something like sexuality, if men are the dominant, men have been the most free throughout history or whatever. And then we just like uncritically take them as our standard. Of course we are going to assume, okay, like women are, equal women are the same so they're the same as this thing so they need to get like sexually liberated and then and start behaving like men and and then you're right of course that can be absolutely terrible but would there be a way to err on the side of her equality but also take mckinnon's point about dominance seriously and so not take him as the standard so could we get the best of both worlds where your point is taken seriously and we have to rethink sexuality but sexuality for humans right? Like what, what does a healthy sex practice look like between these morally equal persons who are not like men and women, they're just persons with sexes or whatever. Um, that would be the approach that I would want to take. But, but of course I can see the pushback is just like, no, because if they are really different. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the same. That's roughly the outcome I'm aiming for there. I guess I think though that the route to that outcome comes through a really good understanding of how men and women are different from one another. Because if we're going to find a effective compromise, yeah, which is basically what I think we're both aiming for, which serves the interests of both sexes as much as possible, I think we need to start by recognizing that there is some points of conflict. But that that could come from either like we could agree on that for very different reasons, right? Like you could say because mm. it's the fundamental nature of man and woman as biological organisms that they have these different drives, or you could bring in your your evolutionary history and tell that story. And then I could bring in my socialization story and say, yeah, men have been so entitled sexually throughout thousands of years of patriarchy that sexuality has turned into this really bad dominating practice. And we need to like reduce that practice in men and somehow shift the practice in women. And we're both maybe aiming at the exact same content in terms of our change to human sexual practice. It's just that yours is grounded in a commitment about difference and mine is sort of like agnostic or erring on the side of rejecting it until I get really strong evidence. And again, yeah, I just, that's what my reservation, I guess, is just that like the commitment to the difference before we have the really strong evidence, it, it's puts us at risk, right? Because then it really risks like locking women into certain, like they believe that about themselves and that limits their possibilities or women's possibilities into the future. Yeah. So I agree that one of the risks with, with saying, um, men and women are different in these ways, you know, basically the stereotypes are pretty much true, even though there are lots of exceptions, is that um, it, it has proved historically very easy to go from that to saying, oh, yeah, women are worse. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that when I, um, 
Um, I don't know if you've read Brian Kaplan's essay, um, Don't Be a Feminist, which he, when he came on the show recently, he talked about Oh, yeah, it. no. I was trying to think, why do I know that name? But it's because I complained about your thumbnail of him. Sorry. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Um, he, he, um, we had this argument about, you know, whether women do tend to be classed as lower status than men. He disagrees. I think that I I feel instinctively that that is true. I think that the 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 specific way in which women tend to be classed as lower status than men is that women tend to be regarded as childlike, very consistently across cultures. And I don't think that that's, um, you know, there are ways in which sometimes that can be to women's advantage a bit. You know, women are less likely to be conscripted into armies or whatever. I mean, that's partly also because of us being smaller and weaker, we're less useful in that regard. Um, but women are also often disenfranchised, often um, assumed to be intellectually inferior, kind of all this stuff. And there seems to be a very, I think there's a very deep rooted instinct towards thinking of women as just being slightly inferior to men, which is not quite the same thing as being misogynist. You know, we yeah. don't hate children generally, yeah. but we also don't think that children are the um, Full practical persons. intellectual equals of adults exactly and and often children are mistreated in all sorts of ways which therefore risks that you know therefore if you're saying if you if you lean into the difference feminism thesis yeah you risk inviting that conclusion yeah that women are worse yeah and and whatever your theory is right so if it's yeah the because i guess there's going to be many different versions of like what our difference consistent like is it yeah less rationality less more, more emotionality more caring instincts more person or you know that there's all these various kind of um ways to fill in the content of what that difference is but also it might be true i mean i think it probably is true and and, it, and, and i guess that's the, like there's a there's a there's a question of political expediency but there's also a question of just like is it true and i think that I don't know it just to me seems as if it would take such a I do I do take your point about the fact that um I agree with soft socialization theory mm. you know it's clearly true that you have cultural variation across time and place mm. and you know you read Mary Wollstonecraft say who saying you know I know it seems like women are really stupid but because but it's just because we don't send them to school yeah uh, <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable point but it also seems to me that we see such consistent differences in things like sexuality in women tending to be more caring in women tending to be more agreeable all of these th things that we observe in the data we also observe them in um history and anthropology um and it just seems so likely to me that that's because there is a biological origin to them yeah but history's always had patriarchy right like i'm i think that's the thing it's like it's not as though we've just been doing experiments and living for two thousand years under all the various conditions and treatments of the sexes and now we've got this like robust controlled corpus of data it's like no like we're we're talking about the ways that women have been throughout history in which they were often like owned as property and uh, raped with impunity and really like just had in any given class, they were always ranked lower than the men and had to make themselves, uh, what's that word, like ingratiating to men because they depended on men's favor for a meaningful life. So it's like there aren't very many countries and there haven't been very many years at which we've really been doing the experiments in living about like what women's lives and accomplishments and successes and independence and so on 
could really look like. And also, despite all the despite the odds, we've seen these like amazing women throughout history that have just like defied all expectations about their capacities and and I don't know to me that is just like yeah once you put all that on the scales like we haven't really done the experiments very well sometimes they manage to just like overcome absolutely everything and do these magnificent accomplishments why don't we have more hope for what the future could look like when we really believe in equality and we really insist on the conditions for it and then just like keep an open mind right about what that might might look like I really just it, it is faith and my co-author Kate feeling like she she just calls it faith she's like don't stop pretending that it's science and that the jury's out it's just like you just have to believe in women's humanity like believe in it first <laughs> it's a matter of faith and then over the horizon I think that's the phrase like we'll see looking back whether we were um she has this really great phrase I can't remember exactly what it is but it's like whether you turn out to be a a prophet or a madman you know like mm. did, did you just believe in it but you're a madman or did you believe in it and it turns out you're one of the moral visionaries of the past um so I think that is just my yeah, it's that's just where I'm at on the kind of like difference feminism, radical feminism split. And I don't even think it's really a split yet. I think we're allies and we're we're under the same umbrella until we win and then we fight. <laughs> For now, we're we're together. But later, hopefully, when the libfems are vanquished, um, we will be enemies. Like because <laughs> that will be the difference that matters. <laughs> Uh, looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, this is not over because I have lots of things to say to that, but it's a nice note to end this part of the episode on. <laughs> so <laughs> do you want to remind everyone of the title of your last book from last year, but also the one that's coming up and when it's going to be out? Oh, yeah. So I wrote a book called Gender Critical Feminism about the theory and movement of this kind of emerging sex-based uh, movement as I saw it. So that was last year with Oxford University Press. And get that before it goes entirely out of print because there were some troubles with it and I doubt that yeah, it will be around that. for long. <laughs> and um, then my newest book, Sex Matters, which is a collection of nine essays on, um, well, leaning in much more to the controversy between gender critical radical feminists and trans activists that came out a couple of months ago. I think that was July. Yeah, and actually I have another book coming out in December, which is uh, called... Is it wrong to buy sex? And that's a debate between a liberal feminist and a radical feminist on the ethics of sex buying. And I, of course, am defending the idea that it is. I'm actually defending the idea that it's not only morally wrong to buy sex, but it's morally wrong to have heterosexual sex, <laughs> which I'm currently getting in trouble for because I talked about it on a podcast recently. And now all the men are angry. <laughs> I think we might have to get you back on to talk about that because I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't know about that upcoming book. <laughs> All right. Is it wrong to have heterosexual sex will be the sequel to this. <laughs> It'll be <laughs> really fun to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Holly, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my substack at Louise perry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community you can also support the show 
by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>